welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. So here we are again on the verge of another lockdown. And surely this will affect some more than others, but it's my hope and prayer that we as a church band together in order to bring hope, offer hope to people in need. And as we celebrate this, the third Sunday of Advent, I'm reminded that hope is on the horizon. And I hope that this sermon will be a blessing to you and remind you of the great lengths that Jesus went to for you and I. You know, pandemic life has been different for everyone. My family has settled into a little bit of a groove, but having a two and a four-year-old during this time just really means a lot of screen time. Um, lots of movies, lots of shows. I'm, I'm pretty certain that my boys have watched everything that they're allowed to watch at this point. And I wouldn't put it past Silas, my four-year-old, to be watching some things he shouldn't be watching. And I'm sure Judah's right alongside him, and he would never rat out his cooler older brother. And I've noticed something as they've been watching all of these movies that regardless of the genre or the style or the quality, they all seem to have a similar recipe. There's a hero, often from difficult or unusual circumstances, who overcomes his or her situation in order to become the person that they were destined to be. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. We love a good underdog story. Well, the Gospels introduce us to an underdog story of sorts, but it's got one major twist, which we'll get to later. But first, let's meet the so-called underdog. Matthew chapter 2 is an account of the birth, the first days, the first months, and even the first years of Jesus' life. As a baby, he and his family had to flee to Egypt, the same country that Jews had been enslaved in centuries before. It was there that they hid out while King Herod systematically murdered all of the young boys living in Jesus' birthplace, Bethlehem. Refugees in a foreign land, Jesus and his family waited for direction from God. And that direction didn't come until after Herod had died. At that time, an angel of the Lord told Joseph to return to Israel. But Herod's evil son was ruler at that time, so they went to Galilee and ended up in a place called Nazareth, hopefully well out of the reach of the evil ruler. And this is what Matthew tells us in chapter 2, verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. We'll speak more about the fulfillment of this prophecy, but first, let's, before we, let's pray before we dig into God's word. And before we pray, I want to warn you that this isn't your typical feel-good Advent sermon. This is a sermon about the birth, life, and death of God's one and only son who chose to come and save his people who had gone astray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask now that you would tune our ears to hear you ever so clearly. Holy Spirit, would you tune our hearts 
so that we might experience all that you have for us. God, may the words from my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you. Jesus, be glorified and magnified in this place and in our homes. It's in your name. Amen. Matthew's gospel explains how Jesus ended up settling down in Nazareth of all places. And why do I say of all places? Well, it wasn't a very high-profile town. It was a humble settlement without any sort of prestige or influence. It would be like saying that Jesus was from Fresno or Stockton. I'm just kidding. There's lots of awesome people that call our church home, and they're from Fresno and Stockton. I was just teasing a little bit. Nazareth was more akin to Keswick or Bloomfield or Grimes, which I bet not many of you know are actually towns in California. And for those of you who do know those towns, I would challenge you to be able to show me where they are on a map. Nazareth didn't have a good reputation either. In John's gospel, when the first disciples were being called, a telling dialogue happened between Philip and Nathaniel. Philip having just been recruited by Jesus, is excited to tell Nathanael that he has found the Messiah and that his name is Jesus of Nazareth, to which Nathanael responds in chapter 1, verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Our Savior was from a podunk town far removed from the holiness and notoriety of Jerusalem and other notable areas. Jesus' upbringing has all the makings of an underdog story. But this is where we begin to understand the fulfillment of the prophecy that Matthew mentioned. Matthew's gospel, again, says that Jesus went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, usually when the Bible mentions a prophecy being fulfilled, you can go and locate it in the Old Testament. That makes sense, right? So then where does it say that the Messiah would be from Nazareth and called a Nazarene? Scholars have examined the prophetic writings and tried to figure out this reference to the Messiah being Nazarene. And you know what? They can't really find it anywhere. Not explicitly. Now, some of you who know the prophecies well might be upset with me right now. You might have been taught that this prophecy is located in Numbers 6 or Judges 13.5. Those verses mention a Nazarite, not a Nazarene. These are two different words. A Nazarite is not someone from Nazareth. Plus, these passages that mention Nazarite have nothing to do with the Messiah, but other prophetic writings did speak of a Messiah who came from the wrong place, who did not conform to expectations, and as a result would not be accepted by his people. So I hope you hear me correctly. I'm not saying that this prophecy in Matthew 2 is not fulfilled in the person of Jesus. What I am saying is that it is fulfilled in a different way than one might expect. There's something distinct about the gospel writer, Matthew. He takes some creative liberties with the Old Testament prophecies and scriptures that he quotes. 
I personally find it quite masterful the way he does it. In the verse that we are looking at, Matthew mentions the prophets in general. Did you see that? Matthew is telling us that Jesus being from Nazareth actually fulfills multiple different prophecies from multiple prophets. Nazareth was a village probably smaller than Bethlehem and without its historical connections. It probably came into existence late in the Old Testament period. Archaeological evidence suggests that its population was a maximum of 480 people in the first century. And we know that from John's gospel, Nazareth had a bad reputation. And to say that the Messiah was to be called Nazarene was on par with Jesus being called something derogatory. The obscure birth and upbringing of Jesus was a significant expectation of a Messiah who would be unrecognized and who would not be taken seriously by his people. Because anyone from Nazareth would not have been taken seriously. This expectation for a Messiah with humble roots comes from Zechariah chapters 9 through 14. But this theme of non-recognition and disdain is most clearly developed in the account of God's servant found in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. And this morning, I want to focus on Isaiah 53. I want you to hear these words written over 500 years before the birth of Jesus. They're an uncanny description of what Jesus does, who he is. So again, these words were written 500 years before the birth of Christ. So close your eyes and listen carefully, or open up a Bible to Isaiah 53 and read along. But either way, let these words soak in your spirit. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and, was esteemed, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off, the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with, his, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Wow. As one famous pastor puts it, he doesn't consider Matthew's gospel to be the first gospel. To him, Isaiah 53 is. I mean, who could have predicted this? And with such detail, only God could write this story. And only God could bring this story to fruition. Matthew is showing us how Jesus being from Nazareth is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah's words. This imagery of the servant springing up like a shoot out of dry ground underlines the unexpectedness of the Messiah's origins. Nazareth is that dry ground from which our Savior sprung up. Our Advent series is focusing on some of the names and characteristics of Jesus. This morning, we're looking at Jesus the Nazarene, and the character qualities associated with this name are humility and lowliness. And these are essential characteristics of any main character to have in an underdog story. But I promised you a twist on that idea. This is not your run-of-the-mill depiction of a person who came from behind in order to become champion or hero. This is the story of the greatest victor of all time subjecting himself to these circumstances out of his own free will. Not because of necessity, but because of love. During Advent and Christmas, we are reminded of the incredible reality that our creator willingly came to his creation and lived as a human. God in human form. He willingly placed himself in that situation. There is no analogy or illustration that could possibly compare with what Jesus did. God is infinitely above, holy, and all around better than us in every single way. It's inconceivable that he would subject himself to life as a human. But, my, but Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would come as a lowly servant king. This was a known attribute of the coming messianic figure. But even though the Jews knew, this to, knew to expect this, they still didn't want to believe it. They wanted something different. They wanted their Messiah to come by force and majesty. They wanted a conquering king who would trample on their enemies and establish an earthly kingdom. Perhaps that is why many Jews, even to this day, do not like Isaiah chapter 53. And maybe you're like that too. Maybe you want or expect something different from Jesus. Maybe you want him to give you the desires of your heart without 
you having to submit to his will. Maybe you want him or expect him to have your political party rule. Or maybe you want him to let everyone into heaven, even if they don't call upon his name. But here's the deal. He is God, and we are not. And Isaiah 53 gives us a detailed description of what Jesus is like and what he endured on our behalf. And even more, this ancient chapter tells us why the Messiah would have to go to such extreme lengths. So for the rest of this sermon, we will look more closely at how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of Isaiah 53. And that's why this isn't your typical Advent sermon, because it goes beyond the incarnation all the way to the crucifixion. Just like Isaiah predicted, Jesus was born and grew up amongst his people. His outward appearance was plain and unassuming. It wasn't anything like those Renaissance-era paintings that we're familiar with. And the people rejected him. And he was a man of sorrows who was well acquainted with grief. In fact, mentioned several times that he was despised. The very people who claimed to worship God had God living amongst them, and they hated him. They hated their creator. And it was utterly painful for Jesus. I just think we miss this at Christmas time. We choose the beautiful and we neglect the brutal, but it's the brutal that makes it beautiful. The purpose of the brutal is uncovered in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Jesus' incarnation allowed him to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. God's wrath, which has to be satisfied, was poured out upon the Son. The unleashing of the punishment on Christ provides a pathway for you and I to peace because we, we've all gone astray and we need to be brought back into the fold of God. How have we gone astray? We have turned, every one of us, to our own way. We do what is right in our own eyes and neglect the law of God. And as God laid Jesus in the manger, he also knew that he would lay the sins of humanity upon him. You know, some people have a hard time with this. Some have actually labeled this cosmic child abuse and cannot understand why God would do this. But I'll appeal to you on two fronts as to why the Son of God had to suffer on our behalf. First, The scriptures are clear on this. This is the atonement, and it was a necessary requirement to satisfy a righteous and just God. It was Jesus' vocation to suffer, and he willingly grew up in, in obscurity and finished his life hanging on a cross. Second, I want to just appeal to your common sense. We all understand justice intuitively. If someone murders another person, should they be punished? Absolutely. Well, Jesus says, if you hate your brother, then you are a murderer. If a spouse cheats on 
their, their, their spouse, should there be consequences for their actions? Absolutely. Jesus says, if you lust, then you have committed adultery. You get it. You really do. Sinning against our creator, against his creation, it requires a punishment. And if you're not convinced yet of the need to punish sin, then I ask you to look no further than yourself. If someone wrongs you, if someone sins against or hurts a family member, you want justice. And that is a God-given trait that lives inside most of us. Verses four through six in Isaiah 53 prophesy about how the Messiah will pay the penalty for our sins. And this should convince us even more about the great lengths to which Jesus went in order to mend our broken relationship with the Father. This was the plan all along. You know, I'm reminded of Jesus's prayer on the night before he was crucified. He was on the eve of an act that had been planned for all of eternity. This was his mission all along. And on that night, as he faced the reality of the next day's torture, his humanity shuddered at the thought of what awaited him. But he was, commit, he was committed to his mission, to what lay before him. He was committed to being the suffering servant that Isaiah had prophesied about. And the events of Good Friday fulfilled the next few verses of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus was silent before his accusers. And they made his grave with the wicked, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And then Isaiah goes on to explain again what Jesus' death would accomplish for us, for humanity. His anguish and suffering would satisfy the wrath and justice of God, thus making those who call upon his name righteous before a righteous God. Jesus, the God-child who was born in a manger and raised as a Nazarene, became low so that you and I could be made high. Again, I told you that this is not a Christmassy sermon, but this is the gospel, and the gospel is dependent upon the incarnation of Christ. It was essential that he became human and endured the life set before him as the lowly servant king. My hope and prayer is that a few things happen in our hearts and minds this morning. First, if you have not been convinced about Jesus before today, then I hope that you might take a look more closely at the prophecy of Isaiah and the way that Jesus so clearly fulfilled it. This is solid evidence. The fact that someone could predict this extremely unusual Messiah, several centuries before he arrived, it almost takes more effort to not believe it. Second, with all that's going on in our world right now, I hope this is a reason for all of us to be thankful. 
This should cultivate a spirit of gratitude in our hearts as we are reminded of what God did for us. This gratitude should spur us on to worship Christ more fully and cause us to repent from our sins. When we think about what Jesus endured on our behalf and that our sins caused it, we should hate our sin all the more. Third and finally, as we focus on the lowliness of Jesus, then we should humble ourselves. You know, the term Christian means little Christ. Therefore, we should be like Christ. We are his ambassadors here on earth. How many of you can say that you share in Christ's quality of lowliness? How many of you, when you are persecuted and your life is not going well, Think to yourself that it is a blessing knowing that you are experiencing a little taste of what our Savior experienced every day of his earthly life. And how many of you willingly, willingly suffer in order to serve others? That's what compassion is, to suffer with. This requires a heart change and a work of the Spirit. But I'll give you some examples so that we together can begin working towards this as a church. Here's how we might show some compassion and join in with the work of our suffering servant king. Maybe it looks like not having family members over for Christmas in order to suffer with those who are scared of this virus in order to suffer with those who are they themselves making that very sacrifice. Maybe that means just tipping your delivery drivers and your essential workers extra this year, or giving cards and gift cards to frontline medical workers. Or maybe God is calling you to something bigger. Maybe in this upcoming year, you forego a vacation in order to do a service project or a mission trip. Maybe it means renting out your house or your guest house for a family in need. I want us to keep on praying into this and to think about how we might forsake some of our comfort in order to be more like Jesus. You know how I said that uh, Jesus' upbringing was an underdog story with a twist? Well, here I am at the end of my sermon, and I just have to say this. Jesus was never and will never be an underdog. He chose in his power to subject himself to a life of sorrow so that we might have eternal joy with him. And the good news on top of that is if you know Jesus then you are not an underdog either. You have the power and presence of the living God inside of you. This Advent season, remember that you are set apart to use your power for good, to use your power for good in a world that desperately needs to know that they have a God who sacrificed it all for them. Serve love, pray, and show compassion. 
Bring yourself low so that others may be lifted high. This is the heart of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we marvel at not only your plan throughout all of eternity, but also the execution that you would come as human, that you would be raised in obscurity in some no-name town as the God of the universe, and that you would willingly subject yourself to the life set before you, and that you lived it perfectly so that you can complete your mission and be our atoning sacrifice on the cross. We thank you for that work, Jesus. I pray that we would be reminded of it daily, the great lengths to which you went in order to save us. God, may we take up our cross and follow you. May we know that we are not serving an underdog, and we are not underdogs ourselves, but we have the power of the risen Christ living in us. And may we use that power for your glory. May we sacrifice, may we show compassion so that our neighbors, our community, and our world might know the truth about who you are and what you did for them. It's all about you, Jesus. It's in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.